You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. It's not easy to face some facts, such as what happens after you die, the truth about sex, or how astronauts take care of personal business while in spacesuits. But author Mary Roach has explained all of that in detail in her string of best-selling books. And she now describes what happens to food after you pop it in your mouth. We talk with her in a moment. And we also ask a psychologist why certain body fluids and foods are psychologically disgusting. So if you're planning on dining while listening to this program, well, depending on your sensibilities, you may want to hold off. It's Stomach This. I'm Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Molly, incidentally, is joining us from New York. Now, the question for Mary Roach is not why would you want to research and write about the alimentary canal and the journey that food takes from the moment we chomp into it to its glorious exit, but what took you so long? Her book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, is perfect Mary Roach, given all the taboo subjects she's tackled in the past. And once again, our unease at the subject gives way to fascination, in this case, with a biological system that is complex, quirky, and efficient and almost all its workings go unseen. Mary, let's start at the top, so to speak, and take this whole process that occurs in the elementary canal in order. Say I put a piece of pie in my mouth, what happens next? Okay, well, presumably you're going to chew it. You're going to process it. The mouth is a very effective oral processor. You're going to chew it, and you're going to take it apart, and then you're going to put it back together in a different shape, a bolus. You're going to roll that bolus, work it around, get it in position, to swallow it. I don't even know the word bolus, and yet I'm doing this. I mean, what, what does the bolus look like, and where does it first appear? <laughs> bolus, well, bolus, boli tend to be cylindrical. It's your chewed food stuck together with saliva. So you got to reduce it to the right. You don't want to chew it too much because then it kind of breaks apart. Then you can't form the bolus. So there's an optimal amount of chewing that you're doing without even giving it a thought. You've mentioned saliva here. Uh, Everybody knows about saliva. Is it just there or is it sort of brought into action by the fact of putting the food in my mouth? Well, there's two kinds. There's the kind that happens when you put food in your mouth and you chew it is stimulated saliva. The other is sort of background moistening saliva that's just there being secreted in little amounts all the time. But stimulated saliva comes in rather dramatically when you start to chew. It doesn't matter what you, you could chew a ping pong ball or a golf ball or whatever you want, and your body will assume that you're attempting to swallow that and help you out by producing lots of saliva. It's quite dramatic. It also comes in in large quantities when you eat something acidic or drink something acidic, cola, wine, vinegar, 
because something in the pH range two to three will can dissolve the enamel of the teeth. So stimulated saliva comes rushing in like the cavalry to dilute that acid and protect your teeth. One thing that's interesting about saliva is that as long as it's inside our mouths, you know, we don't have any problem with it. God, your mouth has all that saliva in it. Yeah, so what else? But as soon as it gets out of the mouth, somehow it adopts a different personality or we perceive it differently, right? And haven't they done experiments where people will take some of their own saliva and put it into a, I don't know, bowl of soup or something, and they won't eat the soup even though it's their own saliva? Yeah, that's exactly right. Their favorite soup. It was a a thought experiment. Imagine your favorite bowl of soup. How likely are you to eat it? This was Paul Rosen, disgust researcher. And people are... Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, on a scale of one to ten, ten, sure. I'd love to have a bowl of my favorite soup. Okay, now spit into that bowl of soup. And how likely are you now? Oh, I don't think I could do that. But it's your saliva. It's going to be mixing with your saliva anyway. No, no, no. Once it leaves the boundaries of the self, as they say, uh, it becomes this object of revulsion. That's true for all of our uh, innards, isn't it? I mean, uh, as long as they stay inward, they're okay. Yeah, they're part of the thing that we cherish, the self. You know, we've got no problem. But yeah, all the body products, I love that. That's uh, Paul Rosen's term, body products. It sounds like something you buy at a spa. But uh, yeah, that's true. That, and But then there's also the fact that uh, whether it's breast milk or semen or saliva or what it is, you tend to extend your acceptance of it to the people that you love, your children or your spouse or whoever it is. Uh, you don't have a problem with their body products either. I mean, not always, but frequently. So you're... St- Stomach. The stomach does a lot of work here in getting your food uh, sort of broken down. Yeah, it does. The, uh, gastric acid, though, one of its prime functions is to kill bacteria. And the saliva has antibacterial properties as well. There's, there's all these defenses against intruders coming into the body. And, of course, you know, when you eat, you're ushering in millions of bacteria into a warm, moist environment that they would love to set up housekeeping in. So there's all kinds of defenses. Gastric acid is a bacteria killer as much as it is a food breaker downer. Everybody feels full at some point. You know, you eat three pizzas or whatever it is, and you feel full. So your stomach has this feeling about it that sort of signals you, you know, no more, no more. But what if you just force yourself? What if you're one of those you know, guys in contest to eat 100 hot dogs at one sitting and so forth? Could you actually burst your stomach? It's very, very, very hard to rupture the human stomach because it, the human stomach has some emergency measures that it takes. They're reflexes, and and one very simple one is called the transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation, and that is a burp, basically. So if if you're drinking a lot of carbonation where there's this gas building up, that's a scary thing for a stomach because it fills it up very fast and could pop it. So you burp. At a certain point, you burp. That's what you do. It it releases the gas. So that's a protective, as well as a a fun thing to do at a party or, or (laughs) I don't know, in the privacy of your room, but it's your stomach protecting itself. There's also, if you persist and you keep going forward with your plan to eat a revolting amount of food, another protective reflex is is regurgitation. And I asked a competitive eater, because competitive eaters eat well beyond the point at which they would appear to be putting the stomach at risk. So I said, well, how do you deal with that reflex to regurgitate? He said, oh, well, uh, that does happen, and we, we swallow it back down because the rules of competitive eating state that the food cannot come out, but they do not state that the food can't come up. <laughs> Mary, let's talk about the colon, which is the next step along the alimentary canal. Sounds like northern New York State. What does it do? And uh, maybe you can describe that odd trip you made to a museum to see one that was ghastly enlarged. Yeah, yeah. I visited the megacolon, which is the showpiece of the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. And this is a colon that is 28 inches around. 
it wears the same size pants as I do. This is not a normal healthy colon. This is a situation where the final third or so of the colon has no nerves. It's a genetic condition, Hirschsprung's disease. So the normal uh, contractions that move the waist along are not happening, and things tend to back up and uh, stretch out the colon, become sort of flabby and useless. The muscles don't work anymore. You get sort of a, It just sort of spirals down, and the person winds up with just horrendous constipation. And sometimes the result of that is a sad, sad state of affairs called defecation-associated sudden death. Okay, I'm going to move on to a yet more difficult subject, flatulence. Nobody likes to talk about this, or perhaps... Well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, are they refrained from talking about it in polite yes. company? But it's really fascinating because it's really the product of microbes that are working for us, really. And right. flatulence has a function. Well, yeah, uh, here again, if you've got it has something going on in the colon, that's where you have bacteria breaking down fibers and things that you couldn't absorb. The small intestine is where you absorb nutrients, and there's some stuff that can't be absorbed there, and it gets pushed on to the composter, the colon, which is where bacteria are breaking down plant matter, fiber, bacteria are breaking it down, and they produce gas in the process. And if they were to produce a lot of gas and there was no outlet, here again, you'd have a danger of rupture. So... Farting is a healthy thing. But why does it smell so bad? Hydrogen sulfide is the main culprit. And this is extraordinary. The human nose detects hydrogen sulfide at two, three, four parts per million. I mean, it's a tiny percentage of gas. Most of it's hydrogen, methane, which are odorless. So it's just the tiniest component is what we're smelling. Speaking of bacteria, we, we hear more about the good bacteria in our stomachs than we used to also in our feces, and the idea of probiotics and fecal transplants, uh, strange as that may sound, seems to be gaining in popularity. Are they quite the same thing, probiotics and fecal transplants? Well, a fecal transplant is kind of the mother of all probiotics. It's a tremendous load of fresh, live bacteria from one donor's, basically it's the person's waste. And it's very simply prepared. When I went to the clinic where there it was being done, it was just put in an oster blender along with some distilled water and, you know, a good cup or more of the material. So, you know, trillions and trillions of, of bacteria that are then put using a colonoscope, just the, the regular piece of equipment you would use to do a colonoscopy. You can have it as a plunger attachment. So you're just taking the bacteria from a healthy person and putting it into someone who, specifically someone who has an infection with C. difficile, which is a bacteria that can be very, very hard to get rid of. And when it gets entrenched inside someone, there's chronic diarrhea. It's, just, it's a horrible disease. It kills 30,000 people a year. And fecal transplants, uh, the latest statistics, there's a 95 or so percent cure rate. So it's very effective, cheap, simple, life-saving technique that has taken a long time to catch on because, it, number one, it's a little icky and there's sort of a natural resistance to it. But more than that, it's, it's there, there's no pharmaceutical company kind of pushing it through the, the system to find a place for it. How do you bill for it? How much do you charge? What's the code that you use? So it's, it's taken a while to catch on, although there are people all over the country who've been quietly doing it and just sort of billing for a colonoscopy. And uh, so, but now there's been a lot of coverage, so it's more accepted. And I think it'll be more normal feature on the menu of offerings of the average gastroenterologist. Well, so to speak, yeah. you know, when you describe this using all these Latinate words, it, it, it sounds, you know, like, sure, of course, just another medical procedure. But if you think of it in sort of popular terms, yeah. it's uh, maybe a little, little tougher to take. Well, finally, Mary, what about the idea that uh, it's in your book at the end there that we're just kind of a large tube. We're just walking elementary <laughs> canals. Uh, something goes in one end and it comes out the other end or what's left of it. 
and that my arms, my legs, my eyes, my brain, they're all just, you know, accessories to keep this tube going. Should that diminish my perception of my fellow humans? <laughs> no, not at all. It just should increase your respect for your tube. <laughs> Mary Roach, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you so much, Seth. My pleasure. Mary Roach is author of Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. Well, there's more to be learned about how the stomach works. And researcher Martin Wickham of Leatherhead Food Research in the U.K. is keeping busy with a project that takes guts, but not real guts. He and his team have built an artificial stomach. Martin, can you describe for me more or less what that looks like? I mean, how big it is and stuff like that? Well, first of all, it doesn't look like a human stomach. I mean, it looks like engineering, really. It's it's a lot of boxes, a lot of cables, a lot of solutions, etc. And it's much bigger than the human stomach. I mean, the actual stomach itself is about the same size, but all the machinery and engineering around it effectively takes up about a laboratory bench, so half a laboratory. What sort of questions do you want to answer? Why did you build this thing? We built it really to try and understand exactly what's going on within our own stomachs. I mean, we know that acid and enzymes are added and foods mixed, but really to be able to get inside a human stomach is pretty difficult. I mean, humans don't like us cutting them open and dipping inside, so we have to do it on the laboratory bench. Okay, so presumably you take some sort of food. I mean, you take an order of fish and chips and you stuff it into whatever is the equivalent of the mouth of this device and it goes inside. What does it encounter in there? What's inside? Well, it is a model of the human stomach, so it recreates all of the environment and all the, uh, the stuff that goes on in our own stomach. So we have to, first of all, deliver to the stomach exactly what's delivered to our own, so we have to do a chew. So we'll take those fish and chips and we'll either chew them on the laboratory bench using a model chew, or we'll actually chew them ourselves and spit them into the model, so we'll chew and spit. And then the stomach actually takes those and, and, and processes them, actually handles that food exactly the same way as your stomach would handle that fish and chips. So the food goes inside. It encounters presumably the same environment it would encounter in my, my stomach. Uh, it has stomach acids and things like that. That's right. I mean, as soon as you put the food into our model, I mean, it essentially comes into contact with the enzymes, the acid, exactly the same fluids and biochemistry that we'd find in our own gut. Uh, does this thing have any ability to move around? Because my tummy sometimes growls. I assume that it's doing something mechanical. It isn't all just chemistry down there. Well, that's right. Your stomach is actually constantly moving. And when you eat a meal, it's really moving a lot. It's squeezing and pushing and crushing the meal. So there's a lot of mixing going on. So that's exactly what we wanted to recreate in our own stomach. So as well as the acid and enzymes and all the other biochemistry, we've also simulated the physical processing, the mixing, that, that squeezing, that crushing of the food. So it's, it's all of that is represented in our own stomach, which is why we needed all the engineering around the, the central stomach. What sorts of things don't we know about how the stomach works? It is pretty tough. I mean, like I said, it's pretty tough to understand what's going on inside our own stomachs. I mean, recently we've had a lot of technologies available to us that have actually allowed us to take a look inside our own stomachs and really work out how they're working. So I'm talking about technologies like magnetic resonance imaging that you'll find in the hospital. We can use this technique to actually see how the stomach works, and then we take that data and recreate it on the bench. So what, what our model's actually doing is... Is, is, it's built from that data and it's recreating exactly the same movements, the same processing as, as our own stomachs. And we can use this to look at the digestion of any foods, any pharmaceuticals, and really try to understand how they're taken apart. 
within our stomachs. Is this something that couldn't have been done 10 years ago or did uh, nobody find it interesting to do? It's something that couldn't be done. I mean, we understood the, the biochemistry, the acid and enzymes. We can stick tubes up people's noses down into their stomach and collect that material. And we can recreate that very easily. But it's the mixing, the physical processing, this mixing, squeezing, crushing that we weren't able to measure until we had the tools, the toys that we now have. Okay, well, I can understand from an academic point of view that it's simply interesting to know how our stomachs work. But, you know, in terms of uh, eventual practical applications, if I were some major distributor or manufacturer of foodstuffs, you know, developing new, I don't know, new snacks or who knows what, would this artificial stomach help me to uh, maybe improve my product somehow? Exactly. I mean, that's exactly why we created it. It is is a research tool, but it's primarily there to help us to develop new foods and new pharmaceuticals. I mean, as consumers, we're very interested in getting health from our diet, so health from our foods. So we may add a, an ingredient to our food which has a health benefit, whether it um, helps with our heart or our immune system, etc. But just adding that ingredient into the food doesn't necessarily mean that it's digested, it's released from the food within the stomach and the rest of the gut. We, we use our model to actually optimize, to, to make sure that those nutrients, those good nutrients are, are released and, and that they're taken up into the body so we get the major health impact that we can from the food. Can you give me an example of something you've learned that uh, looks like it might have some benefit? Some of the areas that we've been working on most recently, we've been looking at the survivability of probiotics. We now know that if we eat probiotics, um, they're they're very good for us in terms of our overall health, including our gut health. But the probiotics have to survive the gastric environment, the stomach, the small intestine. So we can use our model to optimize the survivability of those probiotics to get them down into the colon, which is the last part of the gut where they actually have the most effect. So that's the probiotics, but also we can look at foods that help us to control our appetite. So foods that make us feel fuller for longer by um, modulating, by changing the way that the food empties from our stomach. There's lots of different applications. Basically, any any food that has a health benefit, we can test in, in our model. I would think that your test tummy, if I can call it that, uh, might eventually lead to, I don't know, better better food for astronauts, something that's really small, just looks like a little bonbon or a thin mint or whatever, and, you know, has all the nutrients I need for the week. Well, possibly. First of all, I like the test tummy. I think I'll keep that and use that. But yes, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, there's no reason why we can't develop meals for um, astronauts if you, if you want. Finally then, Martin, looking down the road a little bit, obviously this particular device is too big to be used clinically, but would it be possible, do you think, in the future to construct an artificial stomach that would be implanted in a human for whatever reason? Well, that's something we're not planning on doing in my lab. I mean, we are engineers, we are food scientists, and and what we're trying to develop is purely research tools. However, knowing the science that's out there at the moment, I think we're pretty close to, to being able to get an artificial stomach that we can actually implant in somebody. So my guess, if I was put on the line here, would probably be in five to ten years, we maybe hear something in the news that, that's being developed. Rumblings of an artificial stomach. Martin Wickham, thank you so very much for uh, being with us today. My pleasure. Martin Wickham is head of nutrition at Leatherhead Food Research in the U.K. We're particular about what goes in our mouths en route to our stomachs. I mean, certain foods we find disgusting and just won't eat no matter what. 
but why is that? The psychology of the gross-out effect next. It's Stomach This on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash X-N-A-S. So our stomach is pretty forgiving. I mean, it can handle a lot, but we can't. Some foods and smells create an involuntary gag reflex in us. For example, I mean, consider this. One of the proposals for dealing with the world's water shortage? Recycle urine. I mean, the astronauts do it, and it's not as though you'd actually be drinking the urine itself. It would be purified water derived from the urine. But the idea is abhorrent to so many people, it just hasn't gotten any traction. Paul Rosin, a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, can tell us why that is and the roots of disgust when it comes to some food and drink. Now, be forewarned, if you're eating a meal right now and are sensitive to scatological descriptions, you may want to consider laying down your fork for the moment. Well, there are two ways of looking at this. If for something like urine in particular, it's quite peculiar that for our body substances, feces being another, we're not upset about the fact that we're a bag of urine and a, and a gut full of feces until it gets outside of our body, and then suddenly it becomes contaminating. It's sort of weird that in its natural place, we are carrying it all the time and not upset about it. But as soon as it gets out of our body, it becomes offensive. Well, what's the reason for that? Is this psychological or is it physiological? It's not physiological. It's a sort of a, I mean, it, in a way it's irrational, though it has something to do with the fact that in general you could say urine and feces are potential sources of contamination. Urine, of course, is sterile when it comes out, but if it sits around for a while, it becomes infected. And feces is full of microorganisms, most of them healthy, but not necessarily all. But if this scenario in which we do drink urine, and I, and I think there's precedent for this, the astronauts recycle their urine in space, I think mm -hmm. that's been done, it would be sterilized, converted by reverse osmosis or whatever, right. uh, and yet it would still gross many people out. Well, the problem is this. All of the water we drink was once in toilets because it, you know, it got flushed down, it went into the ocean, the Molecules evaporate, they go down a stream, and it's, you know, and we drink them. Uh, one of my colleagues has calculated that we all drink uh, a couple of molecules in a glass of water that were in Moses at one time, which is sort of nice. And if you're in Europe, every glass of water has some Hitler molecules in it, some water that went through Hitler. I mean, it's just the way of the world. But the problem 
is in the examples we're thinking of, it's sort of more immediate. It's like Hitler just drank the water and I said, you have some. <laughs> well, we, we have this uh, gross-out response to a number of substances, even aside from bodily fluids, mm-hmm. bugs, insects. That's mm-hmm. another area. Can, can you describe the experiment you did with some juice, some cockroaches, and some hapless volunteers? We did a study, which is pretty well known now, where we gave University of Pennsylvania undergraduates a glass of fresh grape juice right out of a little container that was sealed, and apple juice, and they liked them both. And then we take a a dead cockroach and we dip it into one of them just for a second, like blink, blink. And then we ask them, will they drink each of the juices again and tell us how much they like them? And no one will drink the one that touched the cockroach. So, Paul, the students actually saw you dip the cockroach in the juice. You pulled it out. It was only for a fraction of a second, you say. And and you presumably told them that it was sterile. But uh, they still weren't buying it or at least not drinking it. Well, in the first instance, you can dip a sterilized cockroach in the juice in front of them. And it's just, you don't say it's just dead. And then people often say it's because of the diseases on the cockroach. So then we can repeat it with the sterile cockroach. And they, they, we get what we call dumbfounding. That is, people just gave us what they thought was a good reason that a cockroach is a disease vector. We eliminate that, and their reason is obviously false to them, too. So they have to make up another reason. Now, what did they say? And the ultimate reason is it's a cockroach. You have cockroached the juice. Some property of cockroach has entered the juice, and it is now part of the juice. Just like some piece of Hitler is in Hitler's sweater, even after you wash the sweater. Now, you note that most of the things that disgust us are animal-related. You know, dead animals, animal guts, animal excretions, mucus, whatever. I mean, just check out, check out a sci-fi film. The, the aliens are always made to look disgusting by having a lot of excretions on their exteriors. They're always kind of slimy and mucusy. Plants don't seem to disgust us. Why is this? Well, first of all, you're correct that of foods— Almost every food that is called disgusting is of animal origin. Often a spoiled food, like spoiled milk or rotted meat, though some people eat that, of course, but it's sometimes just from an animal that we don't like, like a rat, or it might be a part of an animal we like, like a cow eyeball. So in actual fact, we find almost all animal food disgusting. We Americans. And if you think about it, we only eat a very little animal food. We eat a lot of that, but only a little of kinds. We only eat cows and pigs and maybe lamb. We eat only their muscle. We don't eat their heads. We don't eat their skin. We don't eat their livers. We eat no other mammals. We eat no amphibians, no reptiles, no insects. Almost all the animals in the world are disgusting to us. And there's a very small subset of animals from which we will eat the muscle. And that's all we'll eat. So, I mean, but... It seems to me that disgust must be something, you know, that evolution has sort of programmed into our DNA to, to save us from disease. I mean, originally, that must have been it. How, how did we get to the state where even stuff that, you know, it isn't disease-ridden is, is disgusting? Where did that come from? Well, first of all, though it is true that animal food is more likely to be a vector for microorganisms than plant food, it's less likely to be a vector for toxins than plant foods. So that's one other side to this. The other is that animal food is the most nutritive food we have, and it's the favorite food around the world for most people. So meat is a very complicated thing, which is a complete food, which is also a potential microorganism risk. So there's a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses. I don't think evolution biased us to not eat meat, which is part of our you know, ancestral heritage. It biased us to be careful, maybe, about eating meat. 
Yeah, well, I was going to say that if it is evolutionarily uh, derived, if it, a lot of this disgust comes from the fact that by being disgusted at some of this stuff, we avoided dying from some disease, it doesn't seem to have affected all the animals. I mean, dogs will eat their own vomit or even worse. Children, um, human children, will eat their own feces or anybody else's that happens to come by. It takes till about two years of age for this to develop. And so I don't personally think uh, that what we're talking about is biologically evolved. I think it's culturally evolved, though one could argue about this. But one of the reasons I think so is that, first of all, it doesn't appear till about two years of age. Little kids will eat anything. Furthermore, this contamination response that I've described with a cockroach, not eating something that touched something disgusting, that only appears at about four or five years of age. Three-year-olds won't eat a cockroach, but they have no problem eating juice that you dip the cockroach in. Okay. And does this extend across all cultures? Or how, how much of this is just learned behavior? Because, you know, you, you read the diets of some, some <laughs> cultures that are very far removed from what we experience here in the U.S., and you say, how can they eat that? And they don't seem to have any problem. Well, we've done this with Indian children, Hindu Indian children, and they look very much like American children. Uh, each culture, though, has uh, interesting inversions of disgust. That is, things that would normally be disgusting become delicacies. What, what is happening is from the whole menu of potential animal foods that we all have, including insects, including shellfish, including all kinds of fish, including reptiles and amphibians, we select, every culture selects a relatively small subset that they will eat. And so the, I think the basic idea is that somehow in, in developing as children, we learned that this whole category of animals is very suspect, but some of them are okay. For us in America, the big example is cheese, which is rotted milk, and it smells rotted. In fact, people can't tell the smell of cheese under some conditions from the smell of feces. So this particular negative thing becomes particularly attractive, partly because it's an imitation of something that we don't like. And other in Southeast Asia, you have fish sauce, which is made of rotted fish. Yeah, I think that was a delicacy of the Romans, actually. Yes, it was. You, you, you say that some people can't tell the difference under certain circumstances between cheese and feces. Uh, why would that be? Well, because they're both rotted protein. Uh, under what conditions would people confuse the smell of cheese and feces? Well, basically, this really hasn't been done under controlled conditions in a lab, but I'm quite confident that if we took feces and cheese with appropriate dyes and so on, and you made them look like the other thing, people would say they smelled terrible. That is, if you had a piece of cheese which you dressed up to look like feces and people smelled it, they'd say it smelled terrible, but it's actually the smell of cheese. Or just imagine this. Imagine I, I give you a little bottle to smell. You can't see what's in it. I say, this is cheese. And you say, oh, it smells good. And I say, oh, I'm sorry. I gave you the feces instead of the cheese. And you say, ooh, it smells terrible. It's the same thing. You just smelled it. Well, Paul, sometimes it's not just the origin of a food that uh, works to disgust us. It could be something about uh, the, the properties. I'm thinking of gravy. You know, when it's warm, it's really tasty. Everybody wants more gravy on their meat or turkey or whatever. But if it gets cold and gets lumpy and clumpy, a lot of people are not so keen on eating it then. Why is that? Well, first of all, there are certain textures that are tend to be disgusting, like viscous things, including things like oysters. And they are associated with decay. Not The oyster that you eat is not decaying, but that texture, some things that are not that way become that way, like meat when they get decayed. So there is a tendency for people to 
find that kind of texture that you also get occasionally in a vegetable like okra as disgusting, probably because it resembles decay. But then there are people who love that texture, like oysters. <laughs> so people are, you know, there are always exceptions, even within a culture, as to what people will accept and what they won't accept. But just let me give you another example. Temp- temperature is another thing. Many people like milk, but most people do not like room temperature milk in this country. It tastes quite different, and that sort of maybe it reminds them that it came from the cow. When it's cold, it doesn't come out of the cow like that. You know, milk is potentially disgusting. It's after all the secretion of cows. And one way we we don't think about that. One of the ways we deal with disgust is we don't think about it. We don't think about that our steak was part of an, a cow. We don't think of the cow being killed. We don't think of the cow being milked when we drink milk. We think about this as a cold white liquid that tastes good. <laughs> well, finally, Paul, uh, are there any foods that you won't eat because they gross you out? I'm pretty open. I've eaten lots of insects. I will try almost anything once, and I'm now actually starting a research program to convince people to eat insects because insects are the solution to the world's food problem. They're high protein, they're healthy, they're easy to grow in large amounts, they're very kind to the environment compared to what we use. They're more efficient at making animal protein from vegetable protein than chickens or cows, and the only problem is people find them disgusting. So if we could only get people over that, they would, and they taste pretty good. I'll look forward to my future hamburger. Yes, well, that's a very good idea. That's a good name. Well, Paul Rosen, thank you so very much for uh, talking with us. Sure. It's my pleasure. Paul Rosen is professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. This restaurant had uh, three and a half stars in the guide, you know. I've read the reviews. Can't wait to savor their offerings. Such a lovely table. <clears throat> Good evening, and welcome to Le Plat des Goutons. My name is Garçon, and I'll be your waiter. Ah, wonderful. Our menu? Oh. Ooh. Mm. And we do have some specials this evening. Oh, please. Uh, tonight we have escargot, brined in a fermented hagfish mucus and served in the roast bladder of an unborn sea bass. I'm salivating already. Oh, we also have our chef's specialty, la tête de veau. It's the entire head of a calf marinated in kopi luwak, a coffee bean found in the feces of an Asian palm civet. Well, that sounds delicious. I really can't turn that down. Tête de veau for monsieur. And I'll have the escargot. Certainly, madame. And to drink, perhaps some wine? What do you recommend? A very popular selection here is the Charles du Dollar. The grapes are crushed by the feet of leprous goats, quite bold, with notes of cherry, oak, and a hint of oof. Excellent. Très excellent, indeed. I will send the sommelier. Hmm. Did you notice? Notice what? The silverware's plate. Really? Oh my gosh. You're right. Well, that's a bit off-putting, isn't it? Probably a mistake by the busboys. But there is the tablecloth. Oh, what about it? Oh, wow. I see what you mean. I mean, this can't be more than 200 thread count. I can hardly imagine they expect us to eat off that. Disgusting. My appetite is suddenly diminished. Wait, the music. I- is that what I think it is? Excuse me, you're right. You're absolutely right. Truly revolting. The French sweets by Bach played on a piano? I think I'm going to be sick. Next, why your gut has a will of its own, and a bit of helpful surgery that you might have trouble getting your mind around. It's Stomach This on Big Picture Science. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We've been hearing that we have a psychological aversion to certain things, some foods and smells, and we've been learning about anatomical processes that are best not described at dinner. But not all of these reactions originate in the mind, says Columbia University researcher Michael Gershon. The term gut instinct may be more than just a colloquial expression. The stomach may do more than just a digestion. Its nerve cells, together with others all along the alimentary canal, may shape our psychological states. That anxious feeling we get when confronted with a threatening situation, well, that may be influenced by the nerves in our gut and not just the workings of our brain. Signals sent from the gut up to the brain along the primary visceral nerve, the vagus, they carry information about, say, our stress response. Think of butterflies in your stomach or that unsettling feeling. And since the gut makes decisions that are separate from the brain's impulses, Dr. Gershon refers to it as the second brain. The brain in your head deals with all of the finer things in life, religion, poetry, philosophy, thought, politics, God help us. But the brain in the gut deals with the messy, dirty, disgusting business of digestion so that the brain in the head doesn't have to, if I can mix a metaphor, get its hands dirty with that sort of thing. It also gives some idea of of why the two would evolve separately and that the gut, which is its decisions are so critical to our survival, that there would be some uh, survival advantage for that having a separate um, thought function, although thought isn't exactly the right word here. Yeah, no, a separate function. The reason is that what the bowel does is very complicated, and the nervous system of the bowel works together with the immune system, so that digestion is one of its functions. Defending you is another. I mean, you have more organisms sitting in you than you have cells of your own so that you are in many ways just a platform carrying bacteria around. That being the case and the gut being essentially a a surface of the body filled with all kinds of alien beings, it's necessary for the gut to be able to keep those beings outside of you. And that takes a lot of action of muscles, nerve cells, secretory cells, gland cells, all of it working together, washing these organisms out. And this is complicated. And if this had to be all kept, all the nervous apparatus that controlled it in the head, you've had massive cables running between your gut and your brain, it wouldn't work. Now, the gut and the stomach, are those two different things? The gut, or the bowel, is essentially the hollow tube that connects the mouth to the anus. So that uh, T.S. Eliot was essentially correct when he said that we're hollow men. So can you give me an example of something that the, the gut would decide to do on its own, or the bowel? Can I use gut and bowel interchangeably? Yes, you can use gut and bowel interchangeably. Well, for example, the gut is able to soldier on happily 
even after all the nerves that connect the brain to the gut have been severed. For example, years ago, in the days when peptic ulcer disease was thought to be psychosomatic, uh, surgeons made a living cutting the vagus nerves to cut the gut off from the brain so the brain would no longer put holes in your stomach. Uh, we now know that was silly, but they did that, <laughs> and the gut went on. Uh, actually, the gut does most of what it does independently of the brain. The brain just says, go forth, and the details it leaves to the bowel. Usually the idea that we have when we think of the brain and the gut talking to each other is that you worry about something, you're stressed out, you're thinking about something, and it gives you a gut ache. But it sounds like, is that the way to think of it, that we have ideas and that travels down to the gut and then the gut responds? Are they independently responding to stress around us? Uh, both are correct. Um, I told you that the gut can work independently of any input from brain or spinal cord. And that's true, but it doesn't always do that. Whenever I call the National Institutes of Health to find out how my latest grant application has fared, I become painfully aware of the kind of effect the brain can have on the gut. That is a very common feeling that many people have in which the gut, as a result of anxiety, begins to go into high drive and one becomes painful and gets the feeling of butterflies in the belly. But let me also say that the gut also sends a great deal of information to the brain because um, we now know that if you can mimic some of the signals that the gut sends to the brain by stimulating the vagus nerves, you can treat depression, you can treat epilepsy, and it's used in people for both of those conditions, and it improves learning and memory, both in humans and animals. The vagus nerve is one that connects the brain to the gut, like an interstate highway or something? Yes, it's like an interstate highway, but it's one that carries messages in both directions. But most of the traffic goes from the gut to the brain. About 90% of the vagus nerve carries information from gut to brain, and only 10% or less carries information from brain to gut. Is everything that's being processed in the gut have to do with digestion? So if you feel nausea, um, that has to do with having eaten something that's not good for you. Is the gut processing other messages? If you're feeling anxious, could that start in your gut? Your nervous system picks up your worry? Well, it's not so much that your nervous system picks up your worry, but the nervous system in the gut can do things that make you worry because of the message that it sends to the brain. And so in patients with irritable bowel syndrome or uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, they're extremely disturbed and anxious and depressed much of the time. Uh, in part, it's because the, the discomfort from the gut is very worrisome and troubling, but also messages from the gut are just intrinsically troubling. And pain from the bowel, for example, is much more disturbing to you than pain from your fingernail or <laughs> your foot. So it also suggests that if you could treat whatever is ailing you in your gut, your anxiety and maybe some other symptoms would go away? Yes. That is correct. And so, in fact, the drugs that have shown promise, all of them, in treating irritable bowel syndrome have all been directed at the gut and not the head. And when they work, everybody feels much, much better. Michael Gershon, thank you very much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. My pleasure.
Michael Gershon is chairman of the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology at New York Presbyterian Hospital at the Columbia University Medical Center. The robots are coming in all shapes and sizes. And certain shapes have an advantage when it comes to unusual movement, such as sidewinding. Snake bots are the shapes that Howie Chosett most likes to build. As a professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University, he has created mechanical snakes that can climb up poles, swim across pools, and squeeze into tight places. So far, this isn't hard to stomach. But what may make you uneasy is that some of these robots are... About the diameter of a dime, which is just the width of a slit that a surgeon might cut into a patient. So if the sight of a hypodermic needle makes you squeamish, well, get ready. Because Howie chose its latest snake bots are designed to slither inside the human body. Howie, why make a robot like a snake? I mean, it doesn't sound to me like a snake bot could bring me a snack from the kitchen. Well, a snake robot is a good choice for applications that may not be inside your home, like getting a snack from your kitchen. What's good about these robots is that they can thread through tightly packed volumes and get to locations that people, conventional machinery, otherwise cannot. So an ideal application is minimally invasive surgery. You want to have a device that will thread through in and around the organs and get to locations without having to make a deep incision because those are quite painful. They're also more expensive. And with smaller incisions, you know, people can leave the hospital sooner and get back to work. Well, are you talking about a snake robot that's small enough to actually get inside my body? So we work on a variety of snake robots of varying sizes, small, medium, and large. At the small scale, our robots are geared towards minimally invasive surgery that can actually, through, say, a a one-centimeter incision, uh, enter your body and reach places that, say, conventional laparoscopes can't. One centimeter. So, you know, a half-inch diameter snake, uh, how, how long is that robot? More or less. I mean... The surgical snake robot that we're developing is about 30 centimeters long and 11 millimeters in diameter. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a pretty small snake. Now, is it, is it uh, radio controlled, that sort of thing, or do you have wires coming out the back? Does it have a, an umbilical cord? The surgical snake robot has a regular joystick, like a Game Boy joystick, that uh, allows you to steer and move forward the head of the snake. Well, Howie, explain how it's going to do any surgery. I mean, I can imagine this little wiggly thing. You, you've described something that's, I don't know, eight or nine inches long, half inch in diameter, that you open up somebody's body, you send them in there. But, I mean, it, it can't wield a scalpel, can it? That's a very good question. Uh, so what you're asking is a common question they ask in robotics. Just because you can get there, can you do the work? With the surgical snake robot we developed, there are three channels through which you can pass conventional tools like a catheter or colonoscope forceps. So the snake robot brings these tools that otherwise could not have accessed these locations, and then once there, it serves as a staging point for which these tools can then do their jobs. So, but the, the, the tools then are remote controlled? The tools are, I hesitate to use the word remote controlled because it connotes You have like a radio signal or something like that, but it's just a conventional tool that a surgeon or a physician would use. But yeah, it it is controlled from outside the body. My research group develops a lot of different kinds of snake robots. You know, each of the kinds of robots we work on 
live in a world onto themselves. So we have the surgical snake robots and uh, hospitals, medical doctors, and, and physicians working in their offices. They would want that robot. But we have other snake robots. For example, we're developing a medium-sized snake robot for urban search and rescue. The idea there is that these mechanisms can extend the sensory reach of rescue workers so they can locate people more quickly and with a little more safety because they're not disturbing these fragile collapsed buildings. Another potential user of the medium-sized snake robot would be people interested in inspecting power plants like heat recovery steam generators or nuclear power plants where there are lots of tubes and pipes that inspectors can't get to or if they can access, access you know, not as frequently as they would like. So again, the snake robot can thread through these tightly packed confined tube spaces and locate possible causes of failure before they become big problems. Could they, for example, uh, climb up a pipe or climb, you know, or, or move along a pipe or, or even go through those ventilation ducts like uh, they always do in the, in the movies? So our snake robots are very good at climbing through long pipe sections, three to six inch diameter pipes. We can climb up, go to the side, go forward, down, any direction you want in a pipe network. And I might add, we can climb both on the inside and the outside of the pipe. Now, honestly, Howie, it's a mystery to me, and I suspect it's a mystery to a lot of people, just how a snake moves. Can you explain in short order how snakes really move, or at least how your snakes really move? So biological snakes have a variety of means by which they move. Uh, usually they're called gates, like a horse gallops is a type of horse gate or a trot is a horse gate. Snakes have gates as well. The more common ones are lateral undulation. That's the one that you sort of see in the movies all the time. Sidewinding, rectilinear locomotion, that's more like an earthworm. And then concertina locomotion, that's what a snake uses when it's inside a very narrow space. We were inspired by these gates and tried to encode them into our snake robots. In doing so, we learned a lot about the fundamental mechanics behind what makes these gates work, and we're actually starting to talk with biologists now and explain to them in more detail as to how biological snakes work. I've got to say, Howie, that seeing some of your snake robots coil around a, a leg and climb up it, or just moving through the mud or on the floor, I mean, it is a bit creepy. Is that just my natural aversion to snakes? I mean, could I ever love a snake robot? A lot of people, including me, have a natural aversion to biological snakes. It's something biologically encoded in us to make us be afraid of them. However, the snake robots don't emote that kind of fear. In fact, I look at them all the time, blur my eyes a little bit, and I kind of almost think they're alive. But they don't look scary. <laughs> well, Howie Chosa, thanks so very much for talking with us today. Well, thank you for your interest in my group's work. Howie Chosit is a professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University. Well, we've taken a tour of the Alimentary Canal and finished with a discussion of tiny robots that may be taking that tour for us one day. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to have to have a ticket to do that. What's interesting to me, Molly, is that we heard from Mary Roach that we're just this big tube that we're trying to feed all the time. And you would think that our behavior would be dictated by what's best for the tube. 
But in fact, that's not necessarily how we look at things. We're disgusted by foods that might in fact be very nutritious. On the other hand, we do have a gut that thinks on its own and will reject foods that aren't good for it. So, Well, it's true that we have innate reactions that protect us. There's a second line of defense, right? There's some things that disgust you even though they shouldn't. There are other things that you might eat that really should disgust you. So it sounds like, you know, nature has provided us with these backup systems, literally back up if, if it's really something you shouldn't eat. Well, Seth, do you think you would let a, a tiny snake bot slither inside your digestive system someday? Well, I have to say, you know, it's so reminiscent of the kind of things you read about as a kid, you know, tapeworms and things like that, that it does have a big ick factor. But maybe if they sedated me and told me that it was really in my best interests. The kind of things you read about as a kid. <laughs> well, we thank our gutsy and never flinching production duo, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Stomach This. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because somehow it's easier to digest, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. And for dessert, we hope you enjoy sterilized cockroach in a pool of your own saliva. Oh. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.